All right, if you would, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, we'll start in verse 27. Uh, I, some of you probably had the same experience I did. I grew up going to Sunday school, so I learned, I learned all the stories of the Bible when I was really little. And I remember my first exposure to the, the ten plagues of Egypt was on a flannel graph. I didn't... And I, I learned subsequently that my Sunday school teachers uh, really kind of had to sanitize a lot of those stories early, early in the, the, the Bible. There are a lot of stories that are really uh, pretty rough, including the, the story of the ten plagues. Uh, but if you're a Sunday school teacher, just know that there are a lot of resources out there for you. Okay, so uh, the cattle died, right? Exodus 9 verse 6, the Lord did that thing on the morrow, and all the cattle died. And so um, we can do a maze. Right, I mean, you see the connection's obvious, right? We do amaze, and you know, there's a cute little, cute little grasshopper. Um, he wouldn't harm anyone, would he? No, not at all. And the best one, one of the best resources, is is this one. So, uh, ten plagues, ten candies that you can eat. All right, I'm going to tell you, there's there's nothing uh, sweet or savory about the story that we're going to uh, get into next. Uh, I, I actually drove through a swarm of grasshoppers one time, and I'm going to tell you, it was terrifying. But I, I was fortunate that I was in my car, but it was, it was a frightening thing. I, I don't want to get out in the midst of this. Uh, a few years ago, when I was in seminary, there was actually a, a security guard for a, a, a high-rise uh, office complex that was in Addison. And at one point in time, this, this swarm of crickets came through Addison, and it got sucked into the ventilation system of, of the, the building, right? And they continued to breed for a while in there, and then they spread out through all the building. And so as you'd walk around the building, literally it was just like crunch, crunch. I mean, you could not avoid stepping on them. You'd open a drawer in a desk. There were crickets jumping out, right? And then they started to die. And they died in the ventilation system. And the smell of, of hundreds and thousands of dead crickets, I mean, it was absolutely and utterly disgusting. Now, imagine in Egypt, crickets dying, Thousands of frogs dying, thousands of cattle dying. Right now, so I, I decided just to sanitize even this morning a little bit. I didn't put up any pictures of dead cattle or people with boils. And so you just got to imagine in your mind, right? Get there in your own mind. This is not a tame story. This is this is a story of of a, a cosmic confrontation. On the spiritual level, but also on the physical level. And in it, God demonstrates that he is absolutely and utterly sovereign over all things. And that he is completely faithful to his promises. God is absolutely and completely sovereign. And he is completely and utterly faithful to all of his promises. So I want you to read with me in Exodus, beginning in chapter 4, in verse 27. Exodus 4, verse 27. It says, Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went out to meet him at the mountain of God, and he kissed him. And Moses said to Aaron, Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which had sent him and all the signs he had been commanded to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and they worshipped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron came and they said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. 
But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. So the stage is set for a conflict. On the one side, you have the greatest earthly ruler who is also considered by his people to be a god, the highest god. He is, he is in their minds, God uh, in human flesh, God incarnate. On the other side, we have uh, an invisible god that no one has ever seen, uh, that no one has actually heard from in 400 years. He appears to be absent, but now he's supposedly returning. He's the god of another neighboring tiny nation nearby, and his people are slaves. So it seems like uh, the decks are stacked in favor of Pharaoh. But what we're going to see is four lessons about God's sovereignty. Four lessons about the will of God. The first is this. God's will is absolutely and utterly clear. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron came and they said to Pharaoh, Thus says I am, the God of Israel, let my people go. Pharaoh, they're my people. They're not your people. They're not your tools, they're not your slave, they are my people and I have made promises to my people and I will fulfill my promises. Remember when we started this series, we went back all the way to the beginning of the promises, Genesis chapter 12. God called a man named Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and he said, Abraham, I'm gonna, Abram, I'm going to do, do three things for you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you territory. And it's going, to be, it's going to be rich with physical and material blessings because I will send my reign at the proper time. Abram, I'm going to give you a land, but I'm also going to give you a seed or descendants, people, to populate this land. And Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And in fact, in you, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. We know subsequently that that blessing is ultimately through the seed, which is Jesus Christ bringing reconciliation to every tribe and tongue and people and nation on the face of the earth. But right now, God's got to get something going because his people are enslaved. Right? In order to fulfill his promises to bless all nations, God has to bring his people out of slavery. But his will is clear. Right? Through this group of people, to bring salvation and reconciliation to all of the nations. Now, let's put that in New Covenant terms. Paul wrote this. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. That is, this is the will of God, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. God says, this is my will. I desire all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, what's interesting here is that word for desire in Greek can also be translated will. It can be translated desire, but it can also be translated will. Uh, my translation says desires. This is New American Standard. And I wonder, uh, yours probably does as well. Why is it that translators don't write here, this is the will of God that all men be saved? Well, it's because it would create a, a, a dilemma for us. It would probably create a little bit of confusion because isn't God's will always accomplished? Can anyone actually resist God's will? Doesn't God always get what he wants? Doesn't he? What is the will of God? The will of God is that every tribe, tongue, people, and nation be blessed ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ, that everyone be brought into reconciliation with God, but they're, they're not, right? 
The will of God is clear, but I would say second, sometimes the will of God is confusing. God has said what his will is, but, but how is he bringing it about in the world? Read with me in verse 4 of chapter 5. It says, But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Again, Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, You are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks, which they are making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it, because they're lazy. Literally in Hebrew, they're slackers. <laughs> they're slackers. Therefore they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men, and let them work at it so they will pay no attention to false words. So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I'm not going to give you any straw. You go and get straw for yourselves, wherever you can find it, but none of your labor will be reduced. So the people scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters pressed them, saying, Complete your work quota, your daily amount, just as when you had straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's, who Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. And they were asked, Why have you not completed your required amount, either yesterday or today, in making bricks as previously? So you see what happens is Moses and Aaron come to the people and they say, God has heard your cries. He's heard your groaning. He's paying attention. He's going to rescue you. He's going to deliver you. And the people fall on their faces and they worship the Lord. And so Moses and Aaron, they go confidently before Pharaoh and they say, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. In fact, I'm going to make your lives worse. The people worshiped. Moses and Aaron obeyed completely as they were told to and everything got worse, not better. And so the people were, not surprisingly, frustrated. Exodus chapter 5, verse 21. They said to Moses and Aaron, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. For you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Verse 22. Then Moses returned to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. It's not uncommon, if you read the narrative of Scripture, for God's servants to be a bit confused about what God's doing in the world, right? A great story, one of my favorite biblical stories of Elijah doing battle with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and he achieves an incredible victory, and then he is persecuted by Jezebel. She chases after him and tries to uh, put him to death. And so uh, Elijah cries out to the Lord. He, he's hiding in a cave, and he says, um, the Lord says to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah says, look, God, I've done absolutely everything that you asked me to do, and my life is terrible. So the Lord uh, causes his presence to pass by, and the wind, and the earthquake, and then a fire, and a gentle blowing, and he says again, Elijah, uh, what are you doing here? 
Then Elijah said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord says, okay, you said that already. I get it, right? Uh, you're, you're frustrated with um, what I'm doing and how I'm executing my will in the world. Have you ever been there? Have you been there where you feel like, Lord, I'm doing absolutely everything that you ask me to do, but life is not turning out well for me. Have you ever felt that? If you're, you're honest, probably yes. Uh, I remember a few years ago, uh, my wife arranged for us to take a vacation to Florida. We hadn't, we hadn't done a family vacation, just the four of us in a while, and she loves the beach, kids love the beach. She was super excited, got on Airbnb and found this, uh, this uh, older couple who owned a bear Airbnb, and of course, right, knowing my wife, she became friends with them <laughs> through the conversation, and uh, they had grandkids, so uh, she learned about all their grandkids' story, found out that they were actually believers, and they started praying for one another, and so, right, I'm like, okay, clearly God has opened up this wonderful pathway for us to enjoy a great vacation in Florida. So time came for us to take vacation. We got in the car. We started driving toward Florida. And we thought, let's stop one day in New Orleans. Kids have never seen New Orleans. Well, fun day in New Orleans. And as we're driving there, we get to New Orleans. We look at the weather report. And a tropical storm is beginning to brew out in the Gulf of Mexico. And we're watching it as our day goes by in New Orleans. We see the tropical storm is becoming a hurricane. And it looks like the hurricane is pointed directly at the beach that we're going to stay at, right? But, you know, those things can always turn. So we got back in the car. We began to drive again. We're driving. We're checking the weather report. We're driving. We're checking the weather report. And it's uh, getting closer and closer and closer to our beach, right? And we got all the way to uh, Mississippi. And I pulled over. I said, let's just get something to eat and reevaluate what we're, what we're doing here. It appears that we might be driving into a, a hurricane. Can we, just, can we just stop for a second? So we got out at the Cracker Barrel and we all ate, uh, except my wife. Tristy didn't eat anything because she was, just, she was so upset. And um, we, we called the family and they said, yeah, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. And so um, decided to turn around. Right? We had to turn around, come home. And so I felt like I need to, I need to comfort my wife. So I, I need to speak some words of wisdom and truth. And I held my wife and I said, clearly, honey, there's unconfessed sin in your life. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> there wasn't unconfessed sin in your life. There was a hurricane coming in, just, just a hurricane. Um, and she'd been walking obediently with the Lord, but things didn't turn out. They just didn't turn out. You ever face that? It's pretty common. Uh, you read the stories of uh, Scripture that that happens. But uh, I shared with you a couple weeks ago a verse that I've been meditating on, but I want to I give it to you again. It's 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9. It says this, For a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Right? And I've been meditating on the word and. What's God's will? God's will is to open up this wide door for effective service so that people can, can come through it and believe and be reconciled. And whenever God opens up a wide door for effective service, he's accomplishing his will, there is always opposition, right? God's will is always opposed in this life. Got that? God's will is, is always under opposition in this life. Years ago, Tony Evans is one of my favorite preachers. I, I heard him do a sermon and uh, he, he created an illustration. He said, imagine if uh, Michael Jordan came to his coach, Phil Jackson, and said, coach, 
uh, you got to do something. They're guarding me way too tight. <laughs> coach, can you, can, you, can you talk to the other coach? Can you talk to the refs? Can you do something? Because they're just guarding me way too tight. Phil Jackson go, Michael, you're crazy. We pay you millions of dollars to face the opposition and make the opposition look foolish. So go out and face them and make them look foolish. Michael, that's your job. Your job is to face the opposition, right? That is the normal Christian life. Has anyone ever heard of uh, prosperity gospel? Heard of that? Right? It's, it's an American invention that's spread throughout the world, right? We kind of created this idea. And the idea is this. It's God's will for your life that you always be healthy and that you always be wealthy. Which sounds kind of good, actually, right? It sounds kind of good if it were true. We say, oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't buy into that, right? But uh, I found a nice, interesting little piece of data this week. 31% of American Christians affirm the idea that if you give your money to God, he will bless you with more money. Right? That's prosperity gospel. That is, God's will for your life is that you always be healthy. God's will for your life is that you always be wealthy. And if you're not, you simply lack faith. You need to just uh, get more faith and give more money. Interestingly, just this past week, one of the uh, premier uh, prosperity, health, and wealth gospel guys uh, began to recant. So that I've seen that there needs to be, in a sense, a theology of suffering in the Christian life. So he began to recant. However, he didn't send all the money back, right? We, we don't buy that, right? Or maybe sometimes we do. Because we're walking obediently and God doesn't bless us perfectly and we're surprised or we're frustrated or we're angry because subtly we actually have begun to believe that or uh, as I've heard Blake describe before sometimes we buy into prosperity light gospel which is okay well God hasn't necessarily promised me perfect health and perfect wealth but he has uh, he has made these promises that that uh, emotionally and spiritually I'll be great all the time right If you read the story, uh, Moses really struggles a lot. Moses, one of the most, uh, gosh, on Mount Transfiguration, who shows up, Elijah and Moses. He's one of the premier spiritual leaders throughout the Bible, and yet uh, he struggles emotionally with discouragement and with frustration and with anger. He struggles spiritually with doubt about what God is doing and confusion, right? He's struggling spiritually, he's struggling emotionally. This, this, church, this is a life of struggle. It's, it's the and. A wide door for effective service is opened to me. God has called you, right, to, to, to participate in blessing all nations that men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, including your family and friends, would know the gospel. And there are many adversaries. There's always opposition to the will of God. Or as Paul will say in Acts chapter 14, it says he strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Right? That's, that's the normal Christian life. We're confused because we have false expectations. But God's will is clear. God's will becomes confusing when we expect there will be no opposition. But don't lose heart. Right? Don't panic. God will execute his will. It will never be as fast as you would like. It will never be as smooth as you would like. But he is getting it done. Not in our timing. Not necessarily in our manner. But God's will ultimately is inevitable. God will accomplish his will. 
Look with me in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 1. Exodus 6 verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let them go. And under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and he said to him, I am. I am. I am. I always exist in every time and every place. I cannot not exist. I am. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, I am, I did not make myself known to them. But I have made it known to you, Moses, and I have made it known to my people. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they have sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because of the Egyptians that are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will make, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and their cruel bondage. Did you notice the repetition? God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, because I am, I am, I am, I am. I will. I will be faithful to my promises. I will. Now, sometimes I, I make the declaration, I will, but it, it's always a bit contingent. And I will, but I might not. Why? Because I'm not sovereign, right? God says I will, and it will happen. Why? Because God is sovereign. So, you know, James reminds us, he says, um, you know, you rush off and you say, we're going to go into the city, we're going to do business, we're going to make a profit. But really, you don't actually know what's going to happen tomorrow. Your life is just a vapor. It's better for you to say, if the Lord wills. Because if the Lord wills, it will happen. Because he's sovereign. Now, what do we mean when we say sovereign? That's a word that we throw around a lot in our Christian circles. But what does it actually mean? It's not, it's not technically a biblical word. It's a theological category. And what sovereign means is this. It means that God has all power, he has all authority, and he has perfect knowledge. When we talk of God's sovereignty, we mean this. It means that he has all power, he has all authority, and he has all knowledge. So David will say, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. You have absolute power. If anyone else has power, it's because you've delegated power to them. Jeremiah 27, verse 5. I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. See what he's saying? God's saying, I have all power. Consequently, I have all authority over everything that I've made. And I have the right to delegate power to whomever I wish. Right? I, I get to do that because I'm sovereign. And because I'm sovereign, I also have perfect knowledge. 
Because I'm moral, my knowledge is good. That is, I express my knowledge through wisdom. So if I choose to act, it will be the best action. If I choose to refrain from acting, it will be the best choice to refrain from acting. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 30 says, There is no wisdom, there's no understanding, and there's no counsel against the Lord. That is, no one has a better idea than God. Right? No one has a better idea than God. God has all power, absolute power. God has all authority. That is, he has the right to use his power however he chooses. And because he has all knowledge, the way that he chooses to act or not to act will always be the best because God is sovereign. Now, one more verse, 2 Chronicles 20. Jehoshaphat said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. Or as David would say, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That is, if God chooses to implement his will in a particular way, it will be implemented. Now, I give all of that background on sovereignty to make the point that the reason God sent the plagues was to demonstrate that he is sovereign. God sent the plagues to demonstrate that he's more powerful than all of the gods of Egypt and more powerful than Pharaoh. So, ten plagues directed against the gods of Egypt. Read with me Exodus chapter 12 and verse 12. Exodus 12 verse 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And against all of the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. Exodus chapter 18, verse 10. So Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, said, Blessed be I am, who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of Pharaoh, who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that I am is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Numbers chapter 33 and verse 4. Numbers chapter 33 and verse 4. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, The Lord also had executed judgments on their gods. The point of the plagues is to demonstrate God's authority and power and sovereignty over the false gods of Egypt. But I want you to notice um, 10 plagues, but there are more than 10 gods. So we don't know specifically why each plague was attached to any particular gods. These are just possibilities, illustrations, because Apis was the god of the uh, goddess of the Nile, Isis, or god of the Nile, Isis, the goddess of the Nile. So each of these were attached in some way to these ideas. So we think this is probably the correlation, but we don't know. In fact, uh, the, the Egyptians had dozens and dozens and dozens of gods. So the question is, why ten plagues? Well, ten plagues, because ten in Hebrew is the number of completion. God gave ten commandments. Were those all of God's commandments? No. Right? Uh, Exodus has other commandments, and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy has other commandments. The ten commandments shows God's law is complete. God's law is perfect, right? So ten, ten plagues 
over all the gods of Egypt demonstrates that God's authority and power over all of their gods is utterly complete. God is sovereign over the gods of Egypt. Why ten? Well, God is sovereign over all of them. But I ask myself again, um, why ten? Why, why did God drag it out? You know what I'm saying? This, is, this happened over uh, probably weeks. Like a plague, relief, plague, relief, plague, relief. It happened over a long period of time. And if you look at the story, what's interesting is initially the, the, uh, the magicians were able to imitate what God did. Right? They, they throw down their staffs and they become snakes. And Aaron probably thought, ooh, that's kind of spooky. Maybe they have authority as well. But then his staff ate their snakes. Okay, so that's good. Uh, and then they were able to imitate the first couple of, of plagues that came. And then, then they weren't able to, to imitate the plagues. They couldn't model it. And they could never turn back the plagues. They could only imitate why? Because Satan can only steal, kill, and destroy. He can't create. But then they reached a point in time where they were actually afflicted themselves. The, the gnats and the flies came in and they afflicted even the magicians. And they said, this is, this is the Lord. This is Yahweh. He is, he is greater. But why did, why did he drag it out? Why did he allow them, in a sense, to kind of compete a little bit at the beginning? And then they failed. And then they were afflicted. And why did it go oh, longer and longer and longer? I would say because God is just showing off. God is just... He is giving time for people to, to, to understand, to absorb the reality of his complete power. Look with me in Exodus chapter 7 and verse 5. Exodus 7 verse 5. Then the Egyptians will know that I am. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel in their midst. Chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there, in order that you may know that I, the Lord, I am, am in the midst of the land. Chapter 9, verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all of the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed for this reason I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power in order to proclaim my name throughout all of the earth. I'm dragging it out so that you have opportunity to see and to believe and to comprehend, understand how truly, genuinely powerful I am, how absolutely sovereign I am over all of the gods of the earth. I'm crushing your false gods slowly so that you'll understand and believe. And he was crushing Israel's oppressor so that they would slowly, gradually come to believe so when they faced further trial and opposition in the future, they would know their God was powerful. Right? Their God was able. Chapter 11 Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. God says, I'm going to send plagues. I'm going to send specific plagues because my plagues will demonstrate that I'm sovereign over all. Specifically and ultimately, I'm sovereign over life and death and I'm sovereign over Pharaoh himself. 
At Pharaoh's initial confrontation, he says this, who is I am? <laughs> Who's the Lord? I don't know him. I haven't seen him. I don't believe in him. So God demonstrates his sovereignty over Pharaoh. What does he do? He hardens Pharaoh's heart. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I will make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. In fact, uh, six times God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. Six times God says, I'm going to harden him, right? Because I'm sovereign over him. Now, interestingly, nine times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It's a very interesting interchange. It says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and then it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Look at chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 32, chapter 8. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. See, there's this interchange. It says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In other words, God didn't take Pharaoh anywhere that, anywhere that Pharaoh didn't already want to go. Why? Fourth characteristic of the will of God is that it's participatory. And you know, I know that word's kind of clunky. I couldn't figure out a better word. <laughs> My point is this. Sometimes, but rarely, God executes his will directly. Sometimes, sometimes he will directly step in and he'll send a storm, right? Or he'll send angels or he'll make an army blind, right? Sometimes he directly intervenes. But even when God directly intervenes, he almost always does it after his people have prayed. Get that? So God hardens Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardens his own heart. God, God brings people into his sovereign will. He doesn't really do hardly anything apart from including us in the execution of his will. Now, theologians hate to say, I don't know. Theologians hate to say, I'm not sure. I don't understand. They want to have an answer for everything. They want to nail everything down. And so here we have this, this, uh, this antinomy. God is absolutely sovereign. And Pharaoh is also responsible. You have this this interchange. It's an antinomy. It seems to be that there's a contradiction here between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. And so what theologians do is they diminish one or the other. Some will say, well, God is not really sovereign in the sense that you think he's sovereign. He doesn't really know all things. He just, he kind of looks down the corridor of time and then responds to what people are already going to do. So they diminish the sovereignty of God and elevate human responsibility. Or others will uh, diminish human responsibility and and put on God this, this concept of sovereignty that's very deterministic. But the Bible affirms both, right? The Bible affirms that God is absolutely sovereign. He has all power, he has all authority, and he has perfect knowledge. And men and women are absolutely responsible for the choices that they make. The Bible affirms both and never attempts to reconcile them philosophically. It just says both of these are true. Let me give you one illustration. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter's sermon, he says, this man, that is Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So is God sovereign or is man responsible? 
Yes. Right? Yes. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter couldn't have said it more clearly. This was the will of God. It was the will of God that his son lose, that his son suffer, that his son die on your behalf. And you are responsible for putting him on the cross. Because God is sovereign and you are responsible. Why? Because you're made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God. God, after he created all things, he got to the pinnacle of his creation, he created male, female, in his image. And if part of God's image is sovereignty, then somehow we actually get to reflect sovereignty. Not in absolute terms, but in delegated terms, right? God is sovereign, capital S. But you make real choices with real consequences, Because in the sovereign will of God, he can execute his will any way that he chooses to. And the way that he has chosen to execute his will is by making these creatures that make real choices with real responsibility. And then he never tells them how to sort all that out. And I'm not convinced that we'll ever actually be able to sort it out. You know, sometimes we'll say to ourselves, well, someday I'll be in the presence of the Lord and I'll ask my questions and I'll get all of my answers. But, you know, I don't know that it's going to work like that because even when we're in the presence of the Lord and we're glorified, we're still finite and he's still infinite. So for all of eternity, we're going to be learning new things about the Lord. Every day you're going to wake up and worship and go, oh my gosh, I never knew that about the Lord. This is amazing. To me, that's the most exciting part about eternity is I'm always learning. My mind is always blown away by the infinite God. And I go on for all of eternity and I still cannot wrap my mind completely around God because he's infinite and I'm finite. And in his infinite nature, he has said, in my sovereignty, I'm going to execute my will through you men and women. You're going to make choices that have real consequences. It's important how you live. So what do you have in Romans 9 through 11? It's a beautiful interchange. Romans chapter 9 is all about the sovereignty of God. Can the clay say to the potter, why did you make me like this? Paul says, nope. Doesn't he have the right to do what he wants with his clay? He made the clay. Yes, he does. God is sovereign. Romans chapter 10, well, why is Israel outside of his blessing currently? Well, because they heard the word of truth and they rejected the word of truth. Man is responsible. Romans 11, God is faithful. Has he made promises to Israel? Yes. So will he fulfill them? Yes, because God is faithful, right? God is all powerful. He is, has all authority to do what he wants, but he also is all good and always fulfills his promises. He will, he will fulfill his promises to Israel. So God is sovereign but you're responsible. And so I want to encourage you because your choices matter that the first and most important choice that you make is to say yes to God. Say, God, okay, I believe. The the story is recorded in the Bible for us to go back and read and remember that in fact, God created the entire universe and consequently has authority over the entire universe and as a result, we're accountable to him. And so if you've never said to the Lord, Lord, I recognize that it's my sin that I'm responsible for and my sin has made a barrier between me and you but I know that your son Jesus has paid the debt of that sin that created the barrier. You can remove the barrier through Jesus. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. If you've never made that decision this morning, maybe you've sat in church your whole life. Maybe you saw the flannel graphs that I saw and you learned all the stories but you never personally, individually made the decision, the choice to say yes. Then this morning, let me encourage you, say yes to the Lord. Your decisions matter. Your choices matter within the sovereign realm of God. The church, how do we apply this? Let me give you a few thoughts as we close. First is this. 
Uh, rest in the sovereignty of God. Rest in it. Yes, there will be opposition. Uh, someday, we will in fact have perfect health restored. We're not going to have aches and pains. We won't wake up and something new hurts. We will have perfect health in a glorified body. We will have unlimited resources at our disposal, but not yet. So don't be surprised. And when something doesn't turn out as you want and your first thought is to get angry at God, uh, check your theology. You may be expecting something from God that he hasn't, in fact, promised to you. But he is sovereign, and so he will accomplish his perfect plan in his timing. Trust in that. Rest in that. And he's in control of the circumstances of your life. Even these, these daily moments of, of challenge and suffering, he, he is working for good, we're told in Romans chapter 8. He's not saying those bad circumstances are good circumstances. That's foolish. But he's saying, I can work these things for good. I can create good in your life through them, through your transformation or through your witness. Right? Rest in the fact that God is all-knowing, he's all-wise, he's all-powerful, he's all-good. Second, pursue the lost and the rebellious. Uh, one of the beautiful parts of the story, we didn't have time to get into it, but uh, we actually will in a couple weeks a little bit, but as, as Israel leaves, there are Egyptians that leave with them and probably other enslaved people that leave with them because they've seen the signs, they've seen the wonders, and they've come to believe that Yahweh is the only God who's worth worshiping. And so you may have a friend or a family member, you go, oh my gosh, they are so stubborn. They're just time after time, they're resisting, they're resisting. Well, you know what? God is not slow, but God is patient Right? So pray for your friends, share with your friends, pursue your friends, because you know that is God's will for your life, and it's God's will for their life. He wants them, and he longs for them to know him and be reconciled to him. And then third, worship the God who is beyond understanding. Romans chapter 9 is about the sovereignty of God. Romans 10, the Jews are responsible for their own condition. Romans chapter 11 Paul says, but God is faithful to his promises. He will fulfill his promises. And then at the end of that whole discussion, three chapters, he he ends with this. Uh, Rather than trying to reconcile philosophically God's sovereignty and human responsibility, this is how he ends. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Greatest theologian in the world says, I don't know. Right, Greatest theologian the church has ever known. The Apostle Paul says, I don't know. I don't know. But you know, that not knowing drives me to worship him. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's worship God because he's sovereign. Right? Let's just worship. So as we close, let's just, let's just bow before the Lord and thank him that his will must be accomplished because he's powerful and his will must be accomplished because he's faithful to his promises and we can trust him even with the, the daily details of our lives. And let's rest in that and let's worship him for that. Father, thank you that you're good and you're strong and you're powerful. Thank you that you're, you're all-knowing. And thank you that in your sovereignty you've chosen to make us in your image so that we can participate in your plan and in your will. May you be honored and glorified in everything that we say and everything that we do. Father, we we rest in your sovereignty. We rest in your strength. And we thank you again that you have brought us into your family uh, by your choice 
to give your son Jesus to suffer and die on our behalf. Father, we thank you that you were willing to make that sacrifice, to take that apparent loss so that ultimately we could have victory in you. Father, I pray that as we rest in your sovereignty in our lives, you just stir within us a a longing, a desire for those around us to to know the peace and the strength that we have in you. Pray, Father, that you just stir up within us a longing for others to to walk with Jesus and to worship you because you're the one true God. And all of the idols in their lives are their foolishness and their nothing. And I pray, Father, you dismantle them and draw them to your son, Jesus. Father, I thank you for making your will known and clear to us. Even in the moments that are confusing, we trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.